And welcome back, boys and girls, for another special edition of the Patreon series. Tonight, I do have a special treat for you. We have Mr. Keith Thompson here. He is an author, independent journalist, and explorer. I believe he is patiently waiting on the line. Let's get right to it, folks. And once again, thanks for pressing play. And joining me right now is Keith Thompson. How are you, sir? I am well, Michael. It's a pleasure to be here. I'm a newcomer to your show. I, I can't stay long-time listener, first-time guest. I'm a, I'm a new-time listener and first-time guest, so it's a pleasure to be with you. I love that. Well, thank you so much, Keith, for hanging out with me this evening. We have lots to discuss, and we should have done this a lot sooner, Keith, but, you know, I was first informed of you a long time ago, but I should have follow, followed up with my listeners. You know, they are actually a rather sharp crowd. Yeah, you, you contacted me around the time I had just done uh, the uh, Coast to Coast AM with George Norris. How did that go, by the way? I did not hear that interview. It went well. I um, That's part of how I, uh, I'm, a, uh, the, I'm associated, as you know, with the UFO phenomenon. Sure. And I say that advisedly because it's a conversation that generally goes awry, depending on, I mean, as soon as you say the initials UFO, you just listen to what the person you've just said it to will say. Um, oh, I believe, or I think that's nonsense, or I, and, and in any case, um, I'm having a, a retur- I wrote a book some years ago that is now out of print about the UFO phenomenon. And with the Pentagon recent report, which with, with which you're familiar, no doubt, right. the uh, Pentagon finally speaking up and the giving up their ham-handed, there's nothing going on here, people, please keep moving, response. They now refer to them as UA, UAP, Unidentified Aerial Phenomena. They're trying to break the association with flying saucers and popular culture. But their recent report investigating 144 of the most difficult sightings could only explain one of them. And that was as a deflated balloon. So um, because of that, I, this is a long answer to about the Nori show coast to coast, but um, the word got out. Uh, well, I actually put the word out. I said, good, I'm, I'm looking forward now that the book is out of print and I retired from the UFO phenomenon unscathed, which there's a whole conversation there because oh, yeah. uh, people don't do well who do the UFO phenomenon, uh, people who write books about it. It, it tends to, it's a very difficult subject, frankly. Uh, it really is. It and and Keith, certain, I, Keith know, I, I have to, I have to just cut you off for a second here and say the book first released it rather. It was back in 1991. Oh yeah. It's a, it's an old, it's 30, it's 30 years old. And that gives you, I mean, I did it when I was quite a young buck, but I'm 30 years older and we're actually talking now uh, thanks to the Pentagon, thanks to all this coming back into play, the book is called Angels and Aliens, as you know, and the subtitle is UFOs and the Mythic Imagination. Right. And uh, we could talk about my take on it when we, we want to come around to that. But now that it is sort of back in the news. They pulled you I, back I in, this, Keith. <laughs> I, I got this call from uh, Nuri's, Nuri's people saying, could you come on to our show? We'd like to have you for two hours. So. It, the show went really well. That, that's, it's a kind of well-scripted two hours. Um, you know that you're talking to a host who is into the paranormal, into the supernatural, both of which, by the way, I think are bad terms. I don't believe in the paranormal or supernatural. I believe there's nature ah, and that yes. there are dimensions of nature we don't understand. That's what that's I think paranormal implies that it's something off to the side of, of reality. It's not quite reality. Yes, it is. Yes, it is. So anyway, I was talking to George Nori, who's who's into all of this stuff, and in many ways further out than my own thinking. So it went very well. And the callers were fun. And uh, it, was, a, it was a, it was a yeah. great experience. You had a good time, in other words. I, I did. And I've done a fair amount of of talk radio for, for various things I've done. But the uh, the Nori show was great. And I, he paid me a nice compliment. His producer said afterwards, George said, we want to know where this guy has been. How come we've never heard of you? He wants to have you back more often because you can talk about this stuff in a fairly wide, wide ranging way. I come at this, this subject and many others as an independent journalist for many years. So I learned, I've learned to write about things journalistically. I can also write an essay that is strongly positioned and uh, I write an opinion as a, as an essay uh, voice. But if I'm doing journalism, I, I try to be, 
I try to go down the middle. And um, so I can talk about the UFO thing because I don't have a real position to defend. I'm one of the few authors who right. is not defending an abduction experience. You don't have a dog in the fight, in other words. No, I have a dog in this room right now. Oh, yes. Uh, Golden <laughs> right. Retriever. But no, I don't have a dog in the fight. Uh, in fact, I even respect the debunkers. The debunk- de- debunker is a is a term for someone who poses as a skeptic, but is in fact a knee-jerk debunker. Right. Excellent. And they yes. often have the upper hand in this debate. But I find them fun because I know that, uh, and I know the current crop of debunkers on Twitter, on the UFO thing, and I know that there's going to, that they start with an unstated default position that if we knew enough about every UFO sighting, including the 143 that the Pentagon said they couldn't explain, which is what they said, uh, we would find that they all have conventional explanations. Well, that uh, you know, 90% of them, Michael, do. 90% are embarrassingly uh, natural phenomena, misidentified satellites, planets, hoaxes, hallucinations. That leaves 10%, maybe even fewer, but that's still a lot. And the ones around the USS Nimitz aircraft carrier that 60 minutes covered. And this thing is whatever it is. They appear to be vehicles, but we don't, you know, they don't behave like, well, they they behave like a kind of vehicle that is so unbelievably beyond our technology that um, I'm open to the possibility that, yes, they could be from off planet the ones that aren't explainable. They could also be a part of nature, frankly, that is here, that has always been with us. And that's a big part of my hypothesis in the book that you've, uh, Angels and Aliens, if you compare the modern UFO phenomenon that began in 1947 with Kenneth Arnold's famous sighting of nine objects over Mount Rainier that were skipping like, quote, saucers, then the term flying saucers entered the lexicon and more began to be seen more were seen that same day. But when you compare what I call the whole UFO space age frame of reference to religious miracles, encounters with aliens, the near-death experience, then you're going into consciousness, uh, paranormal, so to, so-called uh, supernormal, and then it becomes possible that this is a larger phenomenon that travels in many guises and in our age is appearing to us as spacefaring visitors. Um, and it is somehow concerned with keeping us believing in it, which is a pretty far out kind of place to start with. By the way, it could turn out to be extraterrestrial. It could turn out to be from other planets. But my, my reading of it is that it's actually the data are far more surreal than this simple ET hypothesis. Right. And we'll get back into the subject in a moment here, but I just wanted to quickly add and ask you this, Keith. You know, you've been in the scene for so long. It's almost like nothing has really changed in so many ways. Right, Keith? It's like you, you know, you you were kind of out for a while and then you go right back in and it's like it's pretty much the, the same deal, right? Well, you know, that's you've actually just touched on a, a big part of my premise in the book. Um what I do, I have a series of chapters that are my that are written in a social history. Uh, I, I basically write chap my chapters in the book are about the major cases, the major sightings, and the debate. And what I noticed, I began watching the UFO phenomenon when I was a kid growing up in Ohio, and I didn't watch Star Trek. I did, I really didn't watch Star Trek. I was not a science fiction fan. Um, I came at the UFO phenomenon. I, I say this in the book. There's one. TV series that I watched as a kid that actually formed my sense of this, of how to think about the UFO phenomenon. And of all TV series, rather than Star Trek, and certainly not Star Wars, it was the 1960s comedy called Green Acres. Now, people, when they hear that, go, what? You, you learn to think about UFOs by watching Green Acres? You know, you know the premise of that show, do you? I do, thanks to my dad. Okay. Yes, yes. Well, it's basically this New York lawyer named Oliver Wendell Douglas, who's married to Ava Gabor, whose name is Lisa Douglas. They get they get it in their minds. They want, he wants to go out to live in the country and start a farm, and he buys some land in a place called Hooterville. And she doesn't want to go because she doesn't want to give up New York life. It's a totally surreal Gulliver, Gulliver's travel type thing. So here's the point that connects me with the UFO. They arrive in Hooterville. They think everybody in Hooterville are kind of kooky. 
But everybody in Hooterville thinks that Oliver Douglas and his wife Mesa are out of place. So it's a surreal look at two different cultures who, and it's just pure comedy. It's vaudevillian comedy. Uh, so I watched this show growing up and I, I, I somehow sensed that it accounted for a lot of the way I see reality, something that doesn't fit. Um, and it's, you know, so much of what goes on in our families is crazy. And we learn to normalize it. Well, when you watch a show like Green Acres and you see that these people are never really going to get in each other's reality. So what has this got to do with UFOs? Well, I grew up watching the major news coverage of, you know, Walter Cronkite and the CBS Evening News would talk about another UFO sighting in Lansing, Michigan. It's today the military is reporting that, that blah, 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 blah. American and living, want, yes. And this gets to your question. It's a long answer. That's okay. But time after time, Here's the basic dynamic. Something is seen by ordinary people. Something is reported by those ordinary people. Various experts, the military, academia, government, said, no, you didn't. You didn't see that. It was conventional. It was swamp gas. It was a satellite. And it gets canceled. Meanwhile, these continue to be seen. And they get continued to be dismissed. And over time, the same dynamic, there's a stalemate. The UFO debate is stalemated almost perennially. And what I try to describe in the book, as I refer to UFOs and the mythic imagination, that in the space of that deadlock, in the fertile void of that impasse, the UFO lands, L-A-N-D-S, it lands in a deeper way. Because there becomes a culture that says something is going on. My cousin saw a Steven Spielberg-type craft behind the school stadium last night. That's seen all over the country periodically. It's seen uh, in Zimbabwe. It's seen in Australia, shooting through the sky at enormous speeds. And then you add the UFO abductions. Well, oh, yes. That's a whole other it's very sexy then. It really is, because they are they uh, they very often, oh, my God, that that, that one is a really... Oh, it's fun to watch in the UFO, even in the UFO field. There are proponents of the ET hypothesis who really want these to be um, craft that are just spacecraft that are just a little further evolved than our best craft. By the way, Keith, hold on for, for a moment here. Let, let's not venture off the whole abduction thing. Let's get right into that for a moment here. What do you make? Okay, of, good. Yeah, let, let's just jump right into that. What do you make of these individuals who make these really far out claims of, you know, having sex with an alien. What do you make of that? Well, the sex with or, or forcibly, be, but they are... Okay, Either end. talk about Either it quote, phenomenologically. Here, Go okay? ahead. I'm just going to... I'm going to say here's what happens because I'm then, what I mean is here's what's reported. Yes. People are... Well, it's Betty and Barney Hill, the most famous. I won't try to go to that case in all its details, but you've asked what's going on. Uh, they're driving home. This is a very often a... a uh, scenario. Yeah. Uh, a couple was driving home in the 1960s, I think in Pennsylvania. They happened to be an interracial couple. That's not really relevant. Uh, they noticed a light that was approaching. They both mentioned it. They both had a strange kind of quietude about it, which there's a sense of something is slipping over us. And that's a very common experience with this. There's a sense in which reality seems to kind of shift. And then there's something really close, and it's like that scene in Close Encounters when Dreyfus is driving his public utilities truck. He works for the utility company, and it shuts off his car, and it's shaking the top of his roof. Well, a, a, essentially, quote, flying saucer uh, hovers over their car. He gets out and tries to take a picture of it and is frozen. She also is concerned. Long story short, the next thing they remember is they're driving home and they're about to arrive home and they're not talking about anything. And she says, what time is it? He says, it's 1 a.m. She said, wasn't it just 10 p.m.? He goes, yes. And then through hypnosis and through, and but why would you need hypnosis? She said, well, you don't often, you don't always need hypnosis. Something happened to them. Now, was it something that's as event level as you and I talking right now? Uh, I don't know. I don't. I'm inclined to think probably not. Yeah. But I don't think it's just psychological either, because there are strange side effects. There are strange physical 
phenomena, some of the abduct abductees refer to having been having something implanted in their bodies and they get x-rays and they think they're able to identify the implants. It's like the phenomena. See, there's a real intelligence creating this effect. I got to do the Larry King show. Respect to Roger Lear, by the way. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yes. Okay. Well, I, when I, when I did, when my book first came out, I did Larry King live and he's a great host. Oh yeah. And he said, Keith, Keith Thompson, tell us, are these abductions really happen? And I said, well, they're happening. Are they real? And I said, yes, but we have to expand our sense of what's real. And he wasn't, he wasn't going to let me have that. He said, no, no. In the reality that you and I are talking right now, are these happening? Are they real? And I, all I could say to him, and it's kind of become my answer. I said, Larry, if you believe if it happened to you or if it happened to me, we would probably believe it was real. Namely, if the experience. Yeah, exactly. Happened. Yeah, it's real in our minds. Well, it's real in our mind and it's real in experience. It's like, you know, when they've done these tests and college classes, sometimes a professor will set up a stunt and he'll pay a surrogate to run into the class and seem to have a handgun or be threatened, threatening in some other way and shout and scream and knock someone's books off the table and then run out the door. And then the professor says, all right, class, write down what, just, what you just saw. Well, everybody had an experience of what just happened. But the variation, eyewitness testimony is mm. notoriously unreliable. Absolutely. I including agree. Including in courtrooms, as you know. Oh, yes. Uh, so well, I saw with my own eyes. Well, you can have a defense lawyer tear that apart very fast. Oh, with your own eyes, sir. Okay, let's talk. So something's going on. I believe this is an intelligence that creates uh, psychic uh effects that has space-time distortions um i don't so one of the things that abductees report is that they have their sexual material of uh, sperm and ovum ova taken from them forcibly maybe and then they or willingly we, we you know sometimes a little bit of both or willingly in some of the cases and some of the south american cases in particular there's much more uh, by the way there's such a range of aliens it's like the Star Wars bar scene. Yeah. The idea that they're all short reptilian grays is something that's landed in the popular culture, but there's a far greater variety. Well, I mean, that of, guy who was on my show last time, Ronnie, Ronnie Dawson, we love him here. Ronnie Dawson. You know, he, he, listened. he claimed to have sex with like a cat-like being, you know, and what's strange is that there was a report from somewhere, I think somewhere in Australia that... Um, there, there were these strange sort of sightings way back in the 50s, 60s, I believe. And the aliens that they're describing were kind of like cat-like aliens. So, I mean, that's a little bizarre, if you ask me. Well, you know, one of the things that got me to, to look at this is going further back, further beyond um, in history than the uh, 1947 Kenneth Arnold spaceship or uh, flying saucers was the Texas airship. They're not, they're not well known. The Texas airship landings in 1897, um, there were sightings in a, a, an area called Aurora, Texas, um, where a sheriff of all people reported he saw a cylindrical craft with propellers fore and aft and a human type figure was standing by his craft and asked him for water. It was a hot day. And 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 you can say, oh, well, and it went into the Houston newspaper. Well, right there. Oh, very likely hoax. We know people tell tall tales and they do. People do tell tall tales and they let And just because they make it into the paper doesn't mean that they're not tall tales. except uh, another witness saw the same thing the day before and independently confirmed it. And over a period of four or five days, this strange craft went from Beaumont, Texas, to Aurora, Texas, to Shreveport. Um, now, so the thing of it is, it, it was a craft that was, it was about a year before the Wright brothers. So it was like a craft that sort of vaguely predicted what we were just about to do ourselves in terms of human technology. And what we have with the spacecraft, with the flying saucers, are an anticipation of the next level out. So I'm kind of of the mind that this is an intelligence that creates phenomena that are just a little beyond the belief system of each culture. 
And they do have something in common. You know, you look at religious miracles like Fatima sure. in 1917. There was an, a round disc that was seen by young Catholic girls, and the Virgin Mary was part of it. So it adapts itself to existing religious imagery. Um, so I, I keep I make it more more subtle and more complex. Maybe complex isn't the right word, but the UFO field loves to say this is the final hypothesis. And one thing I show is that each hypothesis has its day in the sun. Ah, yes. It's like Sisyphus in mythology. He rolls his rock up to the top of the hill, and each time, because he's sentenced by the gods, that's his fate. So he rolls the rock to the top of the hill, and then the rock rolls back down. And he walks back down to the bottom and rolls it back up. I use that metaphor, mythologically speaking, to define how the UFO field constantly attempts to make this fit rationally. I think that's part of the problem, Michael. We are attempting to fit it into our three dimensions of space and time. And I just think that we're going to find out that there are more dimensions uh, than, than we know. Uh, quantum physics is very suggestive. It's not a field I can understand. It is so squirrely and wild and mystical. But uh, ju I just, as I said at the beginning, I don't believe in this, the supernatural or supernormal or paranormal as categories. I believe yes. in the phenomena, the telepathy and clairvoyance and uh, remote viewing. Now, these are all real things. I just think they're part of nature that we can't fit in our Newtonian boxes so this thing constantly outsmarts us. That's why in the book I end up celebrating the trickster dimension from mythology. The trickster figure is an amazingly uh, fun phenomenon in, in mythology because it refers to that principle of life that continues to subvert. It's a very fun archetype, yes. So you read about Coyote. I mean, even in <laughs> Run, Roadrunner and Coyote, you have a very simplistic, childlike recommend, uh, rendition of Coyote, who tries to outsmart the uh, roadrunner, but always gets caught by his own foibles. So the trickster is very often uh, falls prey to his own tricksterism. And the UFO field is filled with hoaxes, for example. So what makes the phenomenon so much fun is that every now and then there's a good hoax that comes along and it's revealed as a hoax. And the debunkers jump on to see all of these cases could be reduced to natural sightings and hoaxes. So it's a mixture of multiple things all with this beguiling acronym UFO. And all that, that says is unidentified flying object. And I go, well, what do you believe? You believe there are objects that fly and unidentified? Well, no, I think there are spaceships. Well, that's not what UFO says. You have, that's an interpretation. You've just called it a spaceship. Well, I'm very often the skunk at the party because um, <laughs> I don't allow these things to, to get very far. So I think it's a great thought exercise, bottom line. When you have a claim like abduction by apparent aliens, you really have to exhaust every psychological interpretation you can. So would you say that it's reasonable to ask, is this interracial, is this interracial couple um, experiencing or externalizing a degree of anxiety about being an interracial couple? Interesting, have yes. Have they created unknowingly a kind of um, a shared hallucination that externalizes their personal struggles. That's not unreasonable. It's not unreasonable at all. We've seen a lot of uh, panic. Remember the McMartin School? Uh, the children's school called the McMartin School? It was widely believed that there was an epidemic of sexual abuse, including satanic activity. That's right. At a private school. And it was so convincing and yet it was ultimately found to have been a mass panic based on sexual and other kinds of things. So you're right. That's a good question about the interracial. The reading that I'm pretty much comfortable with at this point is that that was actually an incidental factor. And in, and in fact, it almost speaks to how, yes, this phenomenon didn't fail to pick them out because they were interracial. It picked them out with that in mind. And when I say pick it out, pick them out, you know, the, the, well, that's one motif. People are driving home, their car stalls, they end up missing time, they had been carried inside a saucer, they'd been experimented on by 
beings that do not appear to have emotions, do not understand their response. Whitley Strieber is one of the most famous abductees. He wrote a book called Communion. He happened to be a writer anyway, so very articulate and um, expressive about the whole thing. Um, and then there's another phenomenon. They take you out of your bed and levitate you through your, through the walls. Yes, that's the astral plane sort of phenomenon that goes on. You know, you get abducted through the astral plane. Well, see, that you've just had, you've really touching close to what I, if I would say what I believe. I mean, I'm not holding that as a hardcore. I believe that what we, you know, this hardcore question is that are these physical events or psychological? Right. And right there, you've got a binary that is so extreme. It's not one or the other. Most binaries don't work out very well. By the way, let me quickly yeah. add, I, I, I hate saying that, but Betty, I believe, claimed to have seen Bigfoot. Well, she later in life, after Barney died, she became, as often happens, they kind of realized they've got a status. And uh, I don't know. I don't know her Bigfoot story, but I do know she became quite a celebrity on the UFO scene and began to espouse stuff that really Ooh. began to embarrass the UFO field. This is what I'm talking um, about, though. See, that that's the sort of thing that I'm referring to in terms of these people that sort of embellish these stories and... Um, maybe Whitley might have embellished a story or two. Maybe Mike Rogers and uh, Travis Walton maybe embellished their stories. You know, they've all been on the show. Well, and Travis is just out. You've probably seen the latest with Travis. Oh, one yeah. of his one of his collaborators. I don't know if was that. Did I? Did you cover it on your show? I talked to uh, Mike Rogers, the guy that was with him. Okay, uh, Mike. Okay, well, well, I talked anyway, to Travis too. Uh, but yes, go ahead. I tend to feel that's a pretty good case, uh, but. I don't know. I always one of the things I've learned here's here's a, here's one of my principles if uh, to all of who are listening how to think about this phenomenon. Don't try to peg it on any one case. I mean, it's a fallacy. What you've got to do is look at the broad patterns. Um, for example, everyone thinks if Roswell could be proven, and I'm willing to say Roswell is a very credible seeming to be type case. Uh, Stephen Greer, the controversial researcher, has made Roswell very big, and um, some others have as well. I'm not trying to dismiss Roswell. It's got a lot of circumstantial stuff going for it. But the problem is there have been many Roswells that sort of fall apart. So uh, so what's my point here um, with Betty and Barney? Uh, oh, by the way, there, one of the things that, you know, Bud Hopkins was one of the leading abduction researchers. He wrote a book called Missing Time, and he would talk with, do a lot of, used hypnosis, which is controversial because the, the thought is maybe the hypnotist is helping to embellish and helping the witness give them evidence. Inserting false premise, right. Yeah. So anyway, Hopkins came to believe that he was, he came to be skeptical of people who claim to be repeat abductees because he said, oh, gee, the repeat abductees are not going to be credible because it's going to look like they've got ongoing psychological problems. And that's what their cases can be reduced to. Well, it turns out if you're really going to be fair about the abduction thing, it does appear that it happens repeatedly to some of the same people. Now, the question, of course, is, does it happen because they believe in it? Does the belief come first and then it happens? Or do they believe in it because it does seem to have happened? And I would say that with most abductees, they do not start with a pre-existing belief. Something happens to them that is so far beyond their categories that and is there are similarities to the certain archetypes to the uh, to the experience that are pretty common, but not not as cut and dried as people like, you know, like one school of thought says the, you know, uh, Bud Hopkins says the abductions were always traumatic. Then John Mack came along, uh, the Harvard psychiatrist who famously got interested in all of this, and it didn't help his career at all, to say the least. I knew John, and that's another story. But he, he tended to come across abductees whose experiences were transformative, that yes. were powerfully spiritual. But that happens to map to some extent on the fact that John Mack himself was going through a spiritual awakening. So it's a strange, messy in between. You mentioned subtle bodies. I think the astro, I think we need something between mind and matter 
I think there are degrees of matter. There are paraphysical, uh, 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 subtle matter, subtle material realms that most of the great religious traditions have talked about, theosophy, the occult, esoteric traditions, all have language of subtle bodies. Well, maybe we have subtle bodies. Maybe we have seven chakras. Maybe we are energy beings that manage to convince ourselves that we're made of matter. We never know. We don't. Well, maybe it's all and the above. I think I, most of the day, I go through life like I'm a body, but I've had my own share of experiences in the realm of consciousness, including one involving near death, where I was looking at my body from above. Maybe we're a bit of both. Maybe we're both in and out. Both in and out, and probably it may well be that our, that truly we are. You know, we you might say we are consciousness that um, can um, can identify as form. I I find that quite uh, some of the Buddhist traditions along those lines. This would be a larger conversation. So but Keith, these are case, so Keith, these are the the patterns that you see amongst the the UFO scene. In other words. What what are the patterns? Yes, well, I'm saying you're you're seeing all these sort of patterns in the field of ufology and abduction cases you're you're starting to see the you're connecting the well, dots in, in other words yeah i am and what i what i was going what i was getting at when i said don't peg it on any one case um is because first of all any one case can fall apart there was one called gulf breeze uh florida in the late 1980s where it was turned out just totally a fake case but what is um i, I would say however that every now and then someone will say to me okay Keith, you, you say the broad patterns that emerge, and you've got to look at the broader patterns. When I do say that, I would be inclined to say this is actually something that goes beyond the ET hypothesis alone. Uh, the ET hypothesis is because when you look at the 14th century murals of the Roman Catholic Church and you see little round seeming spacecraft in the corners of those murals, but they weren't probably represented as spacecraft. They were angels. That's why I called my book Angels and Aliens. It's, I've tried to open up the phenomena to say that this is probably a spectrum of experiences and the, ET, the, the UFO research world is bound and determined. I mean, for example, the entire field of UFO research right now is mobilized around this word disclosure. Finally, the Pentagon is going to disclose. Finally, we're going to get a final answer. This whole expectation of a final answer, I, I put my hands together and I bow at that with great respect and appreciation, but I think they're going to find that the secret that the Pentagon has been holding is their recognition that we don't know what the hell this is ourselves except it is beyond it comes and goes with impunity in our skies it seems to disable our missiles it's preferential for our nuclear sites no doubt about that god you've got to get lou elizondo on your show i would love to yes that'd be a great chat and you know talking about all the more well i shouldn't say their recent sightings but they're recent for us because we haven't seen them but it happened years ago uh, the, the footage that has been shown, you know, on all mainstream media, all those reports. But it also reminds me of all those early stories about USOs going back to the uh, 50s. Oh, ab- absolutely. And um, Elizondo's interesting because, you know, he, he, he came at all of this. He was a uh, his, he was a longtime uh, operative, if you will, in the defense establishment and in, in, in the intelligence services. He was involved with the 9-11 terrorists and getting their interrogations. He's a good patriot. I, I don't know him, but I have a lot of respect for him. Sure. I don't find, I don't find his intelligence background dis, disabling or disconfirming, um, as some do. But he was one day asked, they called him in and said, Lou, we love what you do here. You've done such great work on the 9-11 stuff. Um, you've got a job here as long as you want. He goes, thank you. And then they said, what do you think, Lou? Of UFOs he says I don't they said what he says I don't sir I don't think about UFOs I know what they are I know what they're alleged to be I know what the debate but I, I don't have time to think about that and essentially that's what they wanted in what's that's what they wanted to hear hmm. because they were about ready to offer him a portfolio for a new, a new portfolio in his daily work he was going to head up the advanced aerial threat investigations program a tip and, and they put on him uh, you know 
they threw a bunch of files on his desk and said, you're going to have a staff. And Senator Harry Reid has gotten you about $22 million through some black budget stuff because we can't publicize this. But he's arranged for some funding. And you're going to just observe this stuff. Well, Elizondo, as a military background guy, since leaving the Pentagon, because he couldn't get them to deal with this stuff openly and honestly, he's a real disclosure guy. He finally quit. And he has been quoted as saying things like, when he's he's been doing a lot of podcasting, so he's definitely he's still under his national security. He's still under his uh, classified, still got his classified standing. So he can't really. He's constantly intimating, Michael, that I would love to be able to tell you how utterly far out this is, but I really can't because I, they'll put me in prison like Daniel Ellsberg. He's not going to go that route. He's not going to pirate papers and. But in any case, he's on the record as saying this could be from outer space, this could be from inner space, and it could be from some space in between. Now, that's my kind of language. That's the premise of my book. Uh, we don't Because there are spaces in between that we, we've stopped tracking since Descartes and since Western science split it in half, mind over here and matter over there. Well, nature doesn't behave according to that kind of dichotomy. So when you say it could be outer space, could be inner space, it could be some space in between, Elizondo, uh, I'm sure Steven Spielberg is looking carefully at Elizondo right now. I mean, creating a movie with a character like Elizondo trying to bring this stuff to light with the Pentagon being very reluctant. You know, they were very close-lipped in their recent report. They did say 143 could not be explained. But uh, they were all very tight. They did not entertain any speculation about off-planet or anything of the sort. Interestingly, they, they did say this. As for those that cannot be explained, we do not believe we will be able to explain them until we have advances in our technology that make that possible. Oh, more money, yay. Well, no, not just more money, Michael. That's that. That's that. But listen to what that's. It was a very well-couched statement. Till our technology is able to investigate there to it. Uh It is beyond what we don't have what it now. The debunkers don't appreciate that. I just heard money. So I reacted. Well, that is, look, (laughs) there are, uh, it is no, it's no uh, coincidence that Elizondo was commissioned to look at this in terms of threat assessment. Right. Uh, Because these go 13,000 miles an hour, six to seven a hundred G forces that you can't turn an F-18. Uh, if you know, it takes the state of Ohio to turn the size of the state of Ohio to turn an F-18. If you turn it too fast, the thing will explode in the sky because of the speed that it's doing. Right. Well, these things go from you know fifty thousand feet to fifty feet in seven eighths of a second, and we have this on camera and radar and. Whatever it is, and then it disappears or it, you know, it changes trajectory. So threat assessment is reasonable. I'm not saying I, if I were, but they don't show hostile intent. That's one thing Elizondo points out. He says threat assessment, sure, we should look at what this thing is able to do technologically. And it would be irresponsible not to ask, is this China or is this Russia? But he's saying what I'm finding, we don't have any evidence that it's China or Russia. We don't have any evidence that it's our own technology. So if we're not willing to look at the fact that it appears to be either from some other dimension right here or from off planet, we are looking at a security gap that makes 9-11 look like a picnic. Oh, my. So uh, it's, it's in, in my world. It's pretty wild. Well, the biggest threat they pose, Michael, is to our sense of uh, shall we call it, to use a fancy term from philosophy, ontological comfort. We, we, don't, we don't feel comfortable with a phenomenon that tells us that our stories about reality, our paradigms, are probably not complete. Remember Galileo got in a lot of trouble. He, he kept saying, trouble. what I'm seeing here with my telescope, uh, Reverend, or uh, Holy Father, is that we spin around the, the, the sun. And he said, no, what you see is that the sun spins around the earth. And he said, no. And he ended up in house arrest for quite a few years. Well, I mean, these great paradigm shifts that happen. I think the UFO phenomenon is that kind of a 
that kind of um, harbinger. I like to use the metaphor of a bobber. I'm not a fisherman myself, but what is a bobber? It's something that appears on the surface and a fish who does not know that it lives in water per se, it just swims, one day sees this bobber from below. And of course, it's got a hook attached to it. And the purpose of the bobber is to draw the fish near and get it to follow the lure and get caught. Well, when it gets pulled out of the water, it suddenly discovers, oh, my God, there's another medium here. Air. Oh, water and air. I lived in water all this time. The UFO phenomenon is teaching us we live in one element and we think it's the full element. And it's saying, no, guys, I'm a bobber and I fly through your sky and I get you excited. And I'm trying to get your attention is what it's essentially saying. This is a bigger game. Mind, body, capacities. Oh, my God. I mean, you look at the great religious traditions of stigmata and the phenomena of religious mysticism. And this is going to sound like a real stretch here, but one of the things I talk about in the book, when you look at the great religious contemplatives, the ones who meditated for hours a day, they got into states where they would create stigmata on their bodies psychologically, not because that was what they were trying to do, they were kind of pathological expressions of the great interrelationship of intentionality and faith and its ability to affect and imprint the flesh. Well, there's a lot of evidence right here. We're going through the Olympics right now. When I look at, um, what is her name, um, Simone Bile. Right. When I see what she does, it's not violating the laws of gravity, no, but she has developed a mastery that is close to to levitation in moments. So I actually think the UFO is saying, you know, you humans have more dimensions in your own nature. You're focused on me. You're focused on these things in the sky. Look at your own nature as more multidimensional. And this is where psychic phenomena come in, levitation, teleportation, remote viewing. So I think it actually points us back to right here, right now, is a bigger game going on than we recognized. And we're more on this body is more than we think it is. And Keith, let me ask you this. Are you religious by any chance? Um, I am. So I'm, I was raised Episcopalian, which is about as lukewarm as you can be uh, in the, it's not a, fervent faith. It's kind of like the Protestant level of Catholicism, but we were not devout. So I'm, I would I would define myself, I have over the years called myself more spiritual than religious. I went through a kind of uh, Sam Harris atheist phase. Mm. Um, I, I like the smart atheist. I love Christopher Hitchens, rest his soul. Um, he probably says I had no soul. But I so as I'm, I'm getting off the, the the point here. I would call, I, I'm very interested in the spiritual esoteric uh, traditions. I've had experiences that cannot be accounted for easily in the materialistic framework, not abductions. I, I say in the book, I've never had a UFO experience, but I end up defining the UFO so broadly that in, uh, I did have a, a near-death experience. Yes. Tell me about the, drowning. please tell us about the near-death experience. Well, I'll try to keep it brief because it is this oh, it's still the largest uh, experience of my life. Oh. Uh, I'd gone to Hawaii with some friends in my 20s to uh, run a marathon. And uh, I'd been a, a distance runner over the years, less so these days. Um, ran the Honolulu Marathon. And the next day, we all wanted to go to the beach to see, you know, to do the waves, to yeah. do the body surfing. And so we did. We got to Sunset Beach on Oahu. And the signs were up. Don't don't swim today, really dangerous. Well, I was among those who said, that doesn't apply to me. And I began to play around the edges of the water and <laughs> shore and was having fun. Yeah. And what uh, slowly happened, or maybe quickly happened, was through that wonderful combination of undertow and waves coming from behind, you can't get back in. And I kept getting pulled further and further yeah. out and the harder. I didn't know at that time that what you should really do is try to swim out beyond the the waves get into the calm place so i bought into the uh, fight the waves but the undertow was too great you got sucked in and i got sucked in i got to a point i'm gonna keep this short but through the struggle of uh, being severely crushed a few times and drinking my share of water and probably having having some in my lungs i got to a place where i said 
I'm not going to look, I'm not going to survive. Oh, by the way, I was waving and people knew I was in trouble. A guy came out on a surfboard, a Hawaiian guy, handed me the board, says, hold on to this. And I did. And it's, and it, then it just, the waves took it uh, quickly and he got back to shore. And I don't know if he ever got a surfboard. So my one, that's when I really said, I'm not going to survive this. And there came um, a sense of, of unbelievable quiet. And I don't know if I was struggling anymore, but I do know this, Michael. I said, oh, my God, look at that guy over there. He's struggling, too. And I looked over and saw another swimmer. And then I realized that I was watching myself. Oh, no. And I was that's when I realized I said, you're dying. And if this is dying, it's okay because you're okay. You're not in your body. I mean, no, 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 no. It wasn't that's rational. But uh, there was a sense of light, of golden white, uh, circular light. And I was probably on my way. I've studied since then the near-death. Uh, the near-death experience did not even exist as a category at this time, or I certainly wasn't aware of it. So I can say for sure I did not study the near-death experience and then try to have one. I only later found out that the stages that I went through, and by the way, I, my life flashed before me, almost like a, like a what do you call it, the one-armed bandit in the gambling casinos where you, <laughs> yes. you see the, the fruit uh, you know, flashing one, two, three. Well, I saw a grade school. I saw experiences. I saw my parents. Damn. And I was checking yeah. out. You were checking out. And, and the next thing I knew, uh, I was approaching – some rocks, coral rocks from my body. I had gone back into conscious. So the consciousness, when I said I saw that swimmer, I saw the swimmer as awareness that was not confined to any form. And I have since come to believe that awareness and presence precedes everything anyway, that, I, that there's a sense of presence, which we always are, and that we forget about. So I next thing I knew, I'm approaching these rocks, and I ended up getting pretty badly um, treated by the rocks. I bet. People came over, and um, the sense of golden energy was remaining. They, 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 they knew that I, you know, there was, how are you, Keith? How are you? And I go, I'm fine. It's not a problem. Fine. But he says, this is a problem. You're bleeding all over. We've got to get you someplace. And I said, God, what time is it? I remember this. I said, they said, what more do you mean? I, they said, it's five o'clock at night. I said, God, it's bright. They said, the sun is almost gone. And it was still because I was still sort of seeing light. Yeah, you were still experiencing this thing. Yeah, I had not completely come back. Now, I, I haven't, I pretty much have learned to live as a human being in my body again. And I, I'm not having, a, I'm, I'm not a psychic, so I don't, I don't claim any great, um, any, sen- any sense of gifts, but I do come away from that with a strong sense that uh, almost amazingly, you know, there are researchers, a field of science called consciousness studies, but by and large, the most obvious thing about our daily existence that we are aware of anything at all is something that science doesn't even pay any attention to. Like, how can that be? One of the things I came away from this experience with incredibly strongly was the most amazing phenomenon is that there is anything at all, that there is awareness at all when there could just as easily have been no awareness and the opposite. or nothing. Yeah. And yet science, if you, if, you, if you study biology or chemistry or physics, you don't, except for, the, except for quantum physics, the quantum physicists are pretty far out. The great quantum physicists sound like mystics. They say that matter is consciousness compacted that we cannot find matter because we only have experience. We experience what we call matter, but it's simply sensation, and that is experience. The universe is made of experience. These are quantum physicists, the, the, the latest branch of... Yeah, they're way that, out there. For, they for really are sense. way out there. And yes. I don't tend to be one who uses quantum physics to prove mystical stuff because uh, to, tomorrow's quantum physics will change too. But I do believe you ask, am I religious? I'm, I, I certainly have a mystical worldview. You're agnostic, in other words. 
Well, I'm I'm agnostic religiously. Well, I'm agnostic. I I can understand the case that atheists make about theistic religion. I can certainly go with Sam Harris and Christopher Hitchens and Richard Dawkins around the incoherence of, let's say, the the three Abrahamic religions at the level of, I mean, I think Jesus lived historically. I believe he was profoundly on fire with light and love and realization. And his basic message is you can get to this through me, through the Father. Now, I'm not a Christian in the conventional sense. So I know a Christian says, well, Keith, that doesn't mean. See, I believe Jesus was here to say that what I'm manifesting is who you already are, and you just don't know it. Whereas mainstream Christianity says, no, 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 no. He's the sole son of God, and he's already done the work. Uh, He's paid the price. You just believe in him, and you get to go to heaven. I go, "Uh uh-uh, it's a bigger game than that. It's a bigger game than that. That's so. To me, Jesus, Buddha, Krishna, the great avatars were those rare individuals who saw through the veil and said, all of you, this isn't just because I'm special. This game is a bigger game. Light and love and fish and wine and miracles are the norm. (laughs) But they seem not to be, too. So that's the other paradox. We seem trapped in matter and we worry about whether we'll go to heaven or not. I don't. Actually, one of the experiences, a near-death experience left for me was, a. I have to put it this way, I have an utter faith in being, Michael. Namely, when I've trusted being, trusted the now, the moment, even when the now is, oh, I'm having a hard time, I don't have enough money, or I have a backache, or whatever. If I trust being, being has never let me down. So I don't think when my life is over, being is going to stop letting me down. I don't know what will be, but I'm not worried that being will cease. Something, because being just is, whether it's consciousness, whether it's spirit, this body will die, but I don't think I'm this body. You'll go somewhere else, in other words. Or, yeah, conscious, I think, and the the best evidence on reincarnation, uh, Professor Stevenson is a great guy who wrote a book called 20 Cases Suggestive of Reincarnation, a university scholar. What I think gets reincarnated is not the self. Keith won't become something else. But the the set of holding patterns that keep Keith in place as an identity, those holding patterns will, will be carried forward unless they're resolved in this lifetime. I actually believe that most psychological and most spiritual work is really about letting go. I mean, that's the, that's the predominant motif in most spirituality. Let go. Look at, look at where you're holding, what you're holding on to. Let go. Let go of that view. The relationship is over, Keith. It's already gone. You're holding on psychologically. Let it go. And letting go almost always is the right answer. Letting go feels good, yeah. And Taoism, you know, read Lao Tzu. Taoism is, I'm a Taoist, you might say. I like a lot of Buddhism. Um when the Buddha attained his realization under the Bodhi tree after trying, every, you know what he did? He finally had tried every ascetic experience that he could have. He tried every form of strenuous yoga, exhausted himself. He had a chronic bad back. One day he finally lay down under the Bodhi tree and says, I'm not getting up until I wake up. And he ceased making any effort, whatever. And he had a realization that it came down to something like, I have always been free, and it was the attempting to become liberated that kept me held. And his realization was by releasing effort entirely and allowing the moment to be exactly as it is, you can't, it's not hard to get free from what you're not being held by. So I know that makes it sound like something very simplistic, but um, I'm an atheist, you might say, around believing any of the religions as gospel. I'm agnostic about a lot. I don't know. And not knowing is a great mindset to take up with UFOs. I think it's why... It's an honest mindset to say you don't know. And yes, I I really do admire you, Keith. You have a profound sort of outlook on, on, on a lot of these things. And, you know, I agree with so many of the things that you've been talking about here. And in terms of religion, I'm pretty much the same way. I kind of see... Some, well, I shouldn't say some religion, I should say um, most of the mainstream sort of religion, let's put it that way, you know, there's so many 
glaring holes and issues about it. But that that's for another show. But I, I think well, you. Is. I mean, yes. for example, I, 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 part of my my path, I spent some time looking at what's called the search for the historical Jesus. And these are scholars who look at, they had an organization called the Jesus Seminar. And what the Jesus Seminar did would, would get very open-minded Christian scholars to get together and evaluate all of Jesus' sayings and his deeds. And what they were able to, I, you know, it's very blasphemy. That, that's, that is blasphemy right there uh, from, a, from a hardcore fundamental Christian position. So I grant that. And if I'm if, it, if there's a fundamental Christian listening tonight, I mean no disrespect toward your faith yes. at all. I really don't. I I can hang with fundamental Christians, um, and I do. I have some in my some in my life. But so my point is, I think, and they the the Jesus seminar concluded that something remarkable did happen at the resurrection, at what is called the resurrection. Did Jesus' body physically fly to heaven? Probably not. But the body was missing, and the witnesses who came had profound epiphanies of some kind. So to me, it's not an either-or. If you believe that Jesus didn't physically rise from the dead, then he just was thrown into a grave. Something happened. I don't know what happened to his body, no. But there was, there was um, a sense of mir- the miraculous in his life and in the life of those who were around him. And the Jesus Seminar, as agnostic as they became about a lot of the canon, the Christian canon, they concluded, many of them agnostic themselves, we cannot say that something phenomenal did not happen at the, at the tomb. So I'm a believer in religious experience. But when we have a religion, and we've all had religious experiences, whether it's around the birth of a child or the death of a parent or a sunset or a near-death experience or whatever, those peak experiences, then we have to, then we sort of try to fit them into our theological categories and we explain them conventional terms. So I'm a believer in experiences that the religious terrain is is real. The religious domain is real, but the accounts we make of it in theology are very often highly rational there's, you know, there's an old saying, you get together a Christian and a Jew, Jew and a Buddhist and a Hindu, and they'll argue. Of course. If you get together the mystics of each of the traditions, the ones who spend time in silence, and they all come together for a conference, and they just are spending the day giggling, because a Christian mystic and a Buddhist sage and a Taoist sage and a Hindu, uh, uh, what do you call a Hindu um religious person, guru, yes. uh, the ones who practice the mystical, meditative, silent way are all more aware of the common ground that they find, um, that, they, that they have different maps for, uh, and that the theologians in each faith fight about and go to war about. But the mystics in each tradition stay silent and smile a lot. <laughs> I hate to do this, but I have to cut you off right there. If you want to listen to the rest of the interview, this is a two-hour long interview, please go to patreon.com forward slash Michael Deacon, and that is where you'll find it. Only $5, maybe even less. Only one way to find out, please go to patreon.com forward slash Michael Deacon. Thanks for pressing play.